Thank you, Miigwech. Now that I'm properly wired up, or am I? Uh, that guy is wired. <laughs> so, I, just testing. Uh, one of the things I've learned over the years is you never start off with your your best joke. You know, the mic might not be plugged in. You know, so, so uh, um, I uh, I hope. Did I do that? No, because I'm going to have to use this this thing. Miigwech. Um, thank you very much, Linda, for the kind introduction. Um, my hearing isn't the best, so I have no idea what she said, but <laughs> I'm sure it was nice. Uh, you know, essentially, I've been a professor of law for you know, it's been over 30 years. Uh, you know, I'm retired now, but I've done a, a range of things in a number of countries uh, having to do with uh, state laws and policies relating to, to indigenous peoples. What is that? Am I doing anything that causes that? If I am, I'll stop it, I promise, but I need to know what it is. Okay. Um, oh, you're the one. Okay. All right. Um, I, I, I start by... Acknowledging the uh, the people here, you know, the traditional owners, the treaty signatories uh, of this region, and I'm not going to name them because I may make a mistake, and I wish not to do that. Uh, I acknowledge uh, some of the uh, people uh, that I know here and have had the privilege of uh, knowing uh, for some time. Uh, Chief uh, Charles Weaselhead. Uh, included, uh, with whom I served on the board of the Aboriginal Healing Foundation some years ago. Um, Marie Smallface Maruli, uh, one of the uh, initiators of the World Council on Indigenous uh, uh, Peoples. And of course, uh, Leroy Little Bear and Amethyst First Riders, good to see you, and Andrew Bearrobe and others that uh, I'm su happily surprised to, to see here, and uh, I hope I, I'm not uh, um, missing anyone. I thank Linda Manyguns and any others at the University of Lethbridge that uh, will have had something to do with the kind invitation that has been extended to me. I, I also uh, begin by remembering, you know, in a public forum like this, uh, the memory of uh, the late uh, Nelson Smallegs, uh, you know, whose uh, sacrifice, uh, you know, is an important uh, aspect of the uh, uh, political uh, struggle of the indigenous people here. To establish what is the place of the indigenous peoples in Canada. I will use the, the word indigenous peoples when I'm referring to just that. Uh, the native people said sometime, the aboriginal people if we use the term in the constitution, the Indian people if we use the term of legislation and some constitutional provision, First Nations people if we use some of the more recent political language which is also found in modern legislation Métis people, Inuit people, and so on and so on. I wrote an article long ago on just the terminology 
this whole area is very, very complex, and I'm very happy that there will be time for questions and discussion uh, later on. So I look forward uh, to that. And my understanding is that I should speak for perhaps 40 minutes or so, and I'm really looking to Linda Manigans here to help me to make sure that I don't go, uh, you know, beyond that a lot of time. But what uh, Nelson Smalllegs and others have had in mind, I think, would could be fairly described as working to identify the place of indigenous peoples in Canada. And that means the place in the public life, the place in the law of the Constitution, the place in the sense of national identity. What is Canada? Many, many years ago I wrote a, a chapter in a book where I tried to deal with that particular question. You know, what is, it, what is the foundation of Canada? And I suggested that a just vision of Canada must recognize its indigenous foundations and that Canada, a just vision of Canada, ought not to be viewed simply as a pale imitation of, of Europe. You see, so it's an extremely important question, I think, a question that um, I would hope uh, should uh, involve reflection by, by all citizens uh, in Canada. So what is the place of the indigenous peoples in Canada leads us directly to the question of the Indian Act and trying to sort out, is it a good idea to tinker with it, to amend it, to reform it? Is it better to abolish it? Or what do we do with it? I think the act is central to those who reflect on, you know, what is that place of, you know, of indigenous peoples. So behind it all is the idea of being distinct. You know, so the indigenous peoples are not just Canadians, not just citizens of Canada, but something else. So what is that something? So it's, it's within that broad discussion that we find, it's me, is it? I, I'm trying to identify what it is that I do that generates that noise, but if it is, but I, I, can't, I can't do anything. Let's try it, Dad. Yeah. Is it better now? I hope. Okay. Thank you. Let's. Okay. Yeah. So far, so good. I'll try it. Right. One of the, you know, what I find really important is the way that people think about a particular issue, and I think the Indian Act has something to do with you know, identifying the way that people think about the place of, of uh, indigenous peoples in Canada. And one of the difficulties is the way that people think about other things. What is important to a good society? <clears throat> one of those important ideas is the notion of equality. One of the greatest challenges to a, a happy, just 
recognition and reconciliation to the answer, what is the place of indigenous peoples? In my professional view, the notion of equality, which is widely, widely accepted in universities, you don't, don't believe me, do a poll in the university. And I think it's much, much overvalued. There are other ways of looking at the world and understanding what are the ideas and the values that ought to inform an understanding of what is the right thing to do, what is the right way to have relationships with other individuals, with other groups in the community. You know, that's just an opening. I could bore you probably with, you know, a longer lecture on every one of these assertions, which I'm trying to stay away from. Uh, but of course, there'll be that question period, so. Here's something that I want to explain right at the beginning. Along with this concept of equality is this other very, very difficult idea which stands in the way of an understanding of the distinct place of indigenous peoples in Canada. And it is the idea of citizenship. What is a citizen? What is this notion of citizenship? It's not a new idea. It's a fairly long idea. I think scholars who, who know their business would generally uh, you know, find the concept, at least in, in Greek society and in Greek philosophy. Before I comment further on the concept of citizenship, I want to mention the related concept of a subject, which is peculiar to the British legal and political system. But if we look at the classical meanings of these words, subject and citizen, we find that the subject is the individual, the idea of a person that is ruled by law, ruled by particular laws. So you will find, if you're a student of Canadian history, that the indigenous people were regarded as subjects of, as I said, the Queen, the Crown, Her Majesty the Queen, all this language, which really obfuscates the important point, which is that this is the state. We have the United Nations today, which is a club of states. You can appreciate why it's called the United Nations and not the United States, you see? But it's a, it's, it's a club of states. So, the, the uh, British imperial law resulted in the recognition of indigenous peoples as subjects of the British legal system. That has evolved over time, domestically, within Canada, as citizenship. So, from the earliest days, individual persons, indigenous persons, were always, as individuals, subjects of the Queen, as it were. Classically, then, the idea of a subject is one ruled by law. What's the difference with the citizen? The concept of citizen is different from the concept of subject by the fact that the citizen, the citizen is not only ruled by law 
as his subject, but the, the citizen also rules. That is, he's not only subject, subject to the laws, but he has a hand in creating the laws. So you see, when I identify that, I hope it assists you to reflect on why this is an important, these are important ideas to address the question, what is the place of the indigenous uh, peoples in Canada? Um, I, I have here, um, you know, uh, a chapter in a book that was published in Europe a, a few years ago on which I I deal with these questions of citizenship and subject and so on, and uh, I developed a conceptual model which I put to the task of being able to describe, in short order, uh, the uh, policies of any particular state in respect to uh, indigenous peoples. So, the important point is here, is that before we look more closely at the Indian Act, the law is, is that Indians, so-called in the Indian Act, are, have all the rights of citizens, all the rights that come with citizenship in Canada. And this has been so historically, always, as a matter of law. Except, to the extent that, that the uh, incidence of status as a subject has been changed by valid law. And that's what the Indian Act did. The Indian Act took away some of the rights privileges and responsibilities of the citizen. That's what it did. So it made a, a very significant change. Uh, and we will look at uh, some of those uh, some of those uh, some of those changes. What do we learn by looking at the app? I think two main things. Why it's so difficult to reform it or to amend it? And I emphasize the relevant meaning connotation here of the idea of reform. Reform does not mean to to transform. It means to to form again, so that you may keep the core of the thing. You see, so amendments really contain the core of the thing, which, as we shall see when we look at the original purposes of the act are not very nice. And I think that we see also why it is so important to 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 jettison the act. Now, I'd like to offer you a very brief uh, overview of the act uh, for those who are not familiar with it. I know some of you are very familiar with it. It was enacted in 1876 but it's not the first piece of Indian legislation, so to speak. It was a consolidation of earlier legislation, including colonial legislation. You'll notice that Canada only was born in 1867. 
to understand the Indian Act today, I think it's important to go back to its, uh, its original history. What was the thinking behind the Indian Act in 1876? Um, the thinking was informed by the prevailing ideas and ideals of the day in the, in the British Empire at the time. This is the time of the height of the British Empire. So the ideas of the British prevailed in Canada as they had prevailed in the United States too and largely did, continued to do so, in New Zealand, in Australia. And the, the thinking was that we, the British, do good things for the indigenous people. And we are good Christians. And we do these good things so as, and there's the expression, I, I borrowed this, I'm not making this up, these are not my words. This is well known in New Zealand in particular, Aotearoa. To smooth the pillow of a dying race. The idea then, of course, is the British, as imperialists, were superior in all ways with the indigenous peoples of the colonies they came to. So he said, we'll, we'll deal well with them because we are good people. We're smoothing the pillow of a dying race. So the original purposes of, of uh, the Indian Act are informed by this intellectual and policy, policy approach. That is, the expectation that the people would, would disappear as distinct uh, peoples. So scholars who have done historical studies have described the reserves, and I'm going to focus on the prairie provinces in Canada for, you know, from now on, as cultural labs on which to assimilate and eliminate Indians as such. And I use the word Indians here again uh, because it is the term that is used in the, in the Act. What the Act created was a system of reserve governments, local government, with limited bylaw-making powers. And the authority is delegated authority. So a band council created under the Indian Act has the authority which is delegated. So the source of legal authority comes from the exercise of the lawmaking power of the federal parliament. So it, 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 uh, the bylaws that are made under that authority are controlled by the federal government. A very complex topic here, and I'm going to have a quick peek at the time here, because uh, this it's, uh, I'll go fairly quickly over the question of the membership code. It's extremely complex, and uh, I'll only come back to it, you know, should there be questions. Um, so, uh, you know, people may have heard the term a status Indian. They don't really know what status means. Status is, I think, a simple idea. It simply says that uh, different folks have different statuses depending on, according to the law that applies to them. So a person who is legally married has certain rights and responsibilities that others don't have. The status of marriage. So in the same way, someone who is entitled or is registered under the Indian Act has the legal burdens, privileges, responsibilities according to the Act. That's all it means. So the Act in its membership uh, system has no relation 
<coughs> to traditional identity, family identity, clan identity, nation identity, whichever words you prefer. It was all applied. So what the act did is it created an imaginary, an imaginary Indian, which is simply a legal construct. So it was applied on the prairies after the treaties to bring in people and to throw out people, depending upon the operation of, of the membership, membership code. And that's regardless of family values, regardless of community values, regardless of these views, or regardless of the treaty authority. The treaties were signed with particular uh, folks who had looked after themselves for, I don't know how long, for a time known only to God. But the Indian Act undertook to define the people there. So it seems to me that one cannot escape the observation that the, this definition of the Indian Act is a fundamental breach of the treaty itself. I mentioned that status Indian under the Act is not the same thing as an Indian in the law of the Constitution. There's been a lot of confusion about that. I don't have time. I certainly will deal with it in question time after, if you wish. But it's an extremely important point that is overlooked. It's so overlooked that there are all kinds of really significant political developments that are founded on a legal error. So there are many Indians for purposes of the Constitution that are not status Indians. And it, 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 it's always important to never confuse the two. If you look at the law of the Constitution and you find the term Indian there and say, well, who is that? Don't make the mistake of thinking that that means Indian Act Indian. Many organizations have done that. Some advisors say, don't do it. They've done it. There's case law on it. There's all sorts of political turmoil all over the place as a result of it. So this is one of the very difficult complexities you know, about uh, the Indian Act. I'm just going to uh, skip over the membership code, uh, really, because uh, it's really complex and it would take some time to, uh, to, uh, to explain properly. I might just very uh, briefly give you my one and a half minute summary of the code, which you almost never get anywhere. It doesn't matter what you read. Uh, so here it is. Uh, the model is one, as you would expect, which the draftsman had in his head in 1876. So I presume it will be a man with those, you know, those things on the, to hold up your sleeves. You know, what do you call this thing? We used to have it. A little green visor. You know, so he's asked to draft a membership code. So, uh, you know, so he, he, he based it on the values and the ideas of his people uh, at the time, which is the model of what uh, social scientists call the nuclear family. Mom, dad and children. So I call it the supper table test. So to follow what the code, the core of the code is, you look at the family at the supper table, that nuclear family, that particular model, mom, dad, daughter, daughter, son. So the dad is an Indian because he belongs to the community that we can call the charter group, which is a group that was politically recognized. Okay, those are Indians over there. So all right. So. We've identified them, done politically. And I say fundamentally it's the only way to, to do the job. Uh, so from there, all dads are Indians. And then the code follows male head of family. The mom is an Indian, 
because she's married to the dead. It doesn't matter whether she's Cree, whether she's Scandinavian, South African, or Belgian. She's an Indian. Legally, she has status as an Indian. You see, so Margaret Thatcher could have come over here before 1985 and married an Indian and she would have become an Indian. Okay? By, by marriage. So, look at the boy and the girl. The boy and the girl, uh, children, they are, too are Indians because their dad is an Indian. Male had a family. So what about them? The boy and the girl. When the boy grows up, doesn't matter who he marries, he'll be an Indian and so will his wife and children. Why? Because male had a family. He will be a male had a family. What about the daughter? When she grows up, the question whether or not she'll be an Indian depends on who she marries. If she marries a male head of family, being an Indian, then she'll be an Indian. Not by virtue of fact she's already an Indian, but by virtue of the fact she marries a male head of family who is an Indian. She marries anybody else, she's no longer an Indian. I see. So that, I think, is a very simple model, but uh, it, it seems to be um, lost in the shuffle because there's so many you know, value-loaded descriptions that this scholar, that scholar undertakes depending on their political, per, political particular, pardon me, particular political or personal interests. So, okay, so I'll skip the membership code. They're very recent developments. They're very, very complicated. I'll happily deal with them. I even have diagrams in another thing that I could show you, but I don't want to do that in the general presentation, uh, if that's okay. Um, now, let me go on to other, what I think are some interesting points. One of the, uh, there are a lot of myths that have grown up around the Indian Act. Remember, it's, the Indian Act is the place of indigenous people in Canada. So, like a lot of these things that have a lot of importance to people through generations, they, I think, probably inevitably will become encrusted with mythology. Like, you know, oh, here's this idea, you know, people pick it up and they'll repeat it and so on. There are even some legal issues that are mythologized like that. I read things written by very nice people with doctorate degrees in this and that, and they publish books. And they're completely wrong. <laughs> you see, so uh, mythology can be very powerful, you know, in, in establishing ideas that are very hard to get rid of. One of them is about the past system. It is true uh, that uh, government agents would establish a past system so that uh, people on reserve were prevented, uh, had absolutely no, no freedom uh, to move, that the Indian agents had complete control of that. But it was never done under the Indian Act. In fact, it was never authorized by law. I've looked at some of the, uh, you know, contemporary accounts, and you know there was some discussion about the legality. They said it better not because it'll probably be challenged and it won't work. So it was done for 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 the reason that those who who did it could do it and get away with it. So I think there's still a lot of that going on today. That a lot of the administration of, uh, of, of uh, Indian affairs on a reserve is done because, simply because it can be done. 
you know, it, it, it could be challenged, but, you know, that there is not fair access, you know, to the law in this, in this country, and indeed in a few countries, I suppose. The, the other one is, uh, one of the provisions that's proposed to be uh, eliminated by Bill, the private member's Bill C-428, the Rob Clark uh, Amendment, which is Section 35, I think, I hope I have the right section in mind, uh, but it's the one that outlawed free trade. And this is an instance of something that, you know, it just goes against the mythology that the public is fed, which is that, uh, historically, uh, Indian people and reserve, you know, were not able to, to compete uh, commercially. Uh, the opposite was true in respect to agriculture. And some good scholars have meticulously uh, described the origins of, of the historical success of the uh, Indian people, particularly in the Oak Lake area in Manitoba, but elsewhere as well, uh, in, in the southern Saskatchewan and other places, Indian farmers did very, very well. So well that the local uh, non-Indian farmers did not like it uh, uh, very much. So they lobbied their, uh, their friends in Ottawa, and what did they do? They passed an act saying, oh, okay, you, got, you can't sell anything that's grown a, a farm on a reserve unless the Indian agent says it's okay. You know, and some of the stories around that should be really good fodder for making really, really interesting movies, I think. You know, I, I, I really would like to see some talented indigenous people, of which there are quite a few, you know, very good at telling stories and film and other places like that. The case of Almighty Voice, if any one of you has ever heard about that, is just one of those instances. They're just incredible human stories that are based on some of these really terrible things that were done by means of the Indian Act. I wanted to mention that the destruction of the culture, the destruction of the political institutions and so on, of the Indian people, was not accomplished only by the Indian Act. It was accomplished by other laws as well, including the Criminal Code. The Criminal Code of Canada was used to criminalize normal family relations. One of the, uh, because I'm speaking in, 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 uh, in, in southern Alberta, I cite uh, a case of uh, Bear Shinbone. You know, so we have cases of Indian men who had several wives because this is authorized by law of the community who were imprisoned at hard labor for a criminal offense under Canada's laws. Uh, so if, if, you, if you want to immerse yourself in some of these studies, I'd recommend this particular article written by a law student in uh, 1979 about justified killings in indigenous society and how they were dealt with by the criminal code. I say, and I emphasize, that the laws, including the criminal code, were used as political instruments to assert and establish the political control of Canada. And there are other books and articles written that will, will uh, elaborate on what I'm 
sad. Uh, well, we come now to the modern era, and I can see that I'm not going to have time to go through all the things that I might have, but I think that's good too, because we'll have time for, for questions. So that way, uh, hopefully, I can respond to your interest. The modern era might be said to to start from the Second World War, I think. You know, and one of the motivating factors towards the changes that have occurred since then were Indian war veterans. There's a tremendously rich story involving the sacrifices and the political work of Indian war veterans, which, you know, I, I acknowledge heartily. It's just absolutely incredible, the sacrifices that, that uh, they have done and the things that they contributed to this country and uh, honored their communities. There's just not enough time to deal with these things. But one of the things that they did is stood up when they came back from the war in Europe and said, I am not going to be treated like that. And their lobbying was one of the factors that gave rise to the latest major amendment in the Indian Act of 1951. So the 1951 amendment of the Act is one of the watersheds that changed some, but not all, of the provisions that were most uh, objectionable, certainly on all the human rights and other standards that we would respect in Canada today. Uh, still some of them there, but that was the start of it. So, for example, in 1951 eliminated the, uh, the uh, I want to mention this one here, the, um, I don't know where it is, uh, mention the, uh, thinking of a case here, uh, oh yeah, right here, uh, uh, this particular case here, in 1904, uh, the provision uh, in the Act was eliminated, which are outlawed Indian religion and, and uh, religious and cultural ceremonies. They were just criminalized. And this is an old man who was over 90 years old, blind, and he was imprisoned in Regina for a crime of having taught his religion to his grandchildren. So, even the hard-nosed farmers in the Regina area thought, I think this is a little bit much. You know, so there's a story behind that, which, you know, I don't have the time to, to tell you, but, I, I, you know, I, I think it, it illustrates my point that 1951 eliminated some of those, some of the worst uh, provisions. Uh, but remember, the purposes behind those old provisions still inform the act. Then here are some factors that many, if not most, if not all of you are familiar with. Uh, the Trudeau government's attempt to do away with the Indian Act, Indian status, the contribution of the chiefs from Alberta, and in particular the late uh, Hal Cardinal, whom I acknowledge here too, the, I knew him and, and his work. Uh, and uh, the, the courts slowly began to give 
decisions that assisted uh, changes in policy and in law. And unfortunately, a lot of those policies, uh, those changes were done as a result of policies, not laws. The lives of Indians on reserve, those governed by the Indian Act, are governed largely by policies. The problem with a policy is that you can't really pin down the wrongdoers who are administering those policies. It's more difficult to haul them before a court and, and have the court order them to do the right thing. This is one of the really, really problematic issues regarding the lack of legal certainty with which Indians on reserve are required to live under uh, today. It involves arbitrariness, control, uncertainty of a kind that is not acceptable if one applies the principle of the rule of law. There is irony, I think, in the fact that one sometimes hears politicians say, oh, we don't like what those Indians are doing. We want them to comply with the rule of law. So one of the answers is, well, that would be nice. How about you start, you know, respecting you know, the rule of law instead of, you know, dealing with in your relationships, in your treaty relationships, not respecting the law, not respecting the rule of law, but simply dealing in these relationships with matters of policy. What I say, if you want to understand the approach today of the federal government, doesn't matter what federal government, you know, what, doesn't matter what political party, and the opinion makers, including newspaper editorial boards and so on, what is their view of What's the right thing to do? Where's the place of indigenous people in Canada? What do we do about the Indian Act? Here's the answer that I say, from my experience. The answer is, we want peace at the lowest price. I could bore you with examples of why I reached that conclusion if we had, if we had time. Another point, which I'll make very uh, briefly, because I want to wrap up in about three minutes, uh, or two and a half, is... Uh, the confusion between the Indian Act on one hand, which I've tried to describe, and treaties or treaty rights on the other hand. Uh, we see this confusion here and there popping up in many places. The treaty relationship is an eternal thing. I've had the privilege of speaking with many, many elders in Canada and in other countries as well. And I am not able to describe to you the philosophy behind so long as the sun shines and rivers flow and so on. Because that is based, as I understand it, from the elders, based on some very deep philosophical approaches of the indigenous people. There's a reason that those ideas were there, that treaty relationship. And if one did a proper analysis of amending or abolishing the Indian Act, I think you'd have to go back you know, to that philosophy and try to understand that, particularly if you wanted to make the treaties effective today. But... Uh, the popular language and so on just, uh, you know, doesn't help to, to relieve us of the confusion. You go to, uh, you know, at least in Manitoba, there's people who are treaty gas prices. You know, they get treaty gas, uh, uh, treaty cigarettes, uh, 
uh, treaty cards. Those things have nothing to do with treaties. They're Indian Act. They're Indian Act things. By and large, Section 87, a tax uh, exemption uh, uh, provision. I won't bore you with, with the law on that. Um, a few years for the Act, very briefly, um, I think w w uh, the one of the reasons is that uh, many uh, uh, commentators on the Indian side have viewed the Act as at least providing a measure of protection, particularly for the lands. Had it not been, and were it not for the Act, and there are some provisions in there that go back to, to the well-known Royal Proclamation of 7 of October, you know, 1792. So the principle of protection of those lands is very important. So people are very concerned about, okay, well, you know, what's the, you know, if we change that and get rid of it, you know, what about the security of those those small bits of the homeland that are left? And a lot of others are quite, I think, very suspicious because. What about the treaties? What about the treaty relationships? I, find, I think the government w would continue to find it very difficult to mandate the Act in the absence of a, a good policy and practice and, and, and uh, a relationship uh, that creates, establishes, and maintains a proper treaty relationship. So I think those are some of the, uh, the, the views, uh, you know, uh, uh, for for uh, for the act, and, and I mention also that uh, uh, people are conservative. Not I'm not referring to the political parties, but people do not like change by and large. I view that as a part of human nature. You know, you live you know a certain way, and people generally fear change. It doesn't matter who. All people are conservative. So uh, conservatism with mistrust of the government for a very good reason. The other uh, point, views, there are views, of course, uh, against the Act, and I have here from uh, someone who has, uh, at least in some quarters, very well known, Terry Nelson from Manitoba, known for quite a while, to see what he said, you know, very recently. So I'm giving you a quote from him, you know, as to what he said, that the barrier to economic development for Indian people is the, is the Indian Act. There have been many uh, 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 recent attempts to uh, to uh, uh, change the Indian Act, and uh, very recently there was an announcement here, six o'clock country, uh, which dealt uh, with that, and uh, many of you will have heard of the public debates about First Nations. Uh, Education Act, you know, there are such acts in, you know, in some places in Canada, notably in Nova Scotia and British Columbia. Those are sort of amendments to the Indian Act kind of things. And then there's this other more recent uh, draft proposal on First Nations Education Act, and then leading to this uh, new, 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 uh, new approach that I think uh, Leroy will know a lot about. Um, I maybe conclude with this point that uh, never be moved to assume that the title of a statute tells you anything about what's inside it. You know, so there's something about First Nation control of education. I'll just give you one example to conclude. Uh, in 2011, I think it was, the government uh, enacted the law, and the bill was called, and the act was called... Uh, 
the Gender Equity in Indian Registration Act, so-called Bill C-3, McIver Amendment, the Gender Equity in Indian Registration. There's no such thing as gender equity in the law of the Constitution. No such thing. You will not find the word gender in the Constitution of Canada. Neither will you find equity in the Charter. So the, the case revolved around the constitutional demands of sex equality, which you will find in Section 15 of the Charter of Rights and Freedom. But you see, thinking of gender equity and so on is done for political purposes, and I don't know why. I see that a lot these days. The concept of gender is substituted for the concept of sex. I don't, I don't know why people do that, but you know, as one who's been around for a little while, I'm befuddled by much of the changes in terminology that I that I see people uh, happily adopt. One of them is begs the question when they really mean raises the question. But anyway, I'm just demonstrating the puzzle, puzzle guy, and uh, it's time to for a question period, I think. And I, I uh, recognize that as Bugs Bunny's observation. So when I went to movies as a young, young boy, young man, uh, they had cartoons with Bugs Bunny and so on. That was, that's all, folks. Nowadays they have ads, but I don't go to movies anymore. They're too loud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just stuck this much time.